Before I have you stand in just a moment for the gospel reading, we are in a series on Jesus' parables from the book of Luke. Parables are simply stories that Jesus told that are earthly in nature but have spiritual meaning and depth to them. They are spoken of as allegories or metaphors or proverbs or even riddles at times. We find that this parable today, like our parable last week, in the midst of Jesus' life where he is headed to Jerusalem. And when Jesus is headed to Jerusalem, that means Jesus is headed towards death. And so Jesus continues to sow these seeds and these truths within his life and within his ministry and within what it means to follow him of death and resurrection. So Luke 10 is another passage for us that models this idea of death and resurrection. Stand with me, if you will, for the reading, the gospel reading this morning. From Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite When he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is the gospel of Christ. Father, we pray this morning simply that you would show us your truth and that your truth would set us free. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. As I said in the scripture introduction, Jesus is on a path. Jesus is on a path to death and Jesus is on a path to resurrection. And those who seek to know Jesus and those who seek to follow Jesus have to be on the same path. It's called pattern imitation. What happens to Jesus happens to those who follow him. So no matter what our understanding of what it means to be a Christian is, the more we read scripture, we can make no mistake about it. To follow Christ simply means to die. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it like this, when Christ bids a man, or when Christ calls a man, He bids him come and die. 
Now, this is not a very popular notion. You don't see this on many church marquees. You don't see this crocheted among many kitchen sinks uh, as far as all the verses that end up on these things, right? You, you know, you see things like, we don't have ice cream, but we have great Sundays, right? It's one of my favorite billboards I saw recently outside of church. You just got it, right? Um, but you just don't see this notion of come and die. But that's what Jesus is saying. Jesus specifically in Luke 10 is continuing this larger theme. And a little more specifically in Luke 10, what I want us to see this morning in an overarching way is this. Following Jesus means dying to ourselves and living for others. Following Jesus at its core means dying to ourselves and living for others. There's immediate resistance that we have probably to this notion on a number of levels. The first simply being, we don't want to die to ourselves, right? I mean, who really wants to die to themselves? We were born to preserve ourselves. We live in a culture that espouses seemingly to the nth degree self-preservation. And so we have resistance immediately on that level. But we also have this other level of resistance when we hear Christ saying, if you want to follow me, deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. Matthew 16, verse 24, a very simple statement of discipleship. What does it mean to know Jesus? It means to deny yourself, to take up your cross and to follow him. And as Westerners and particularly Americans who live in what David Brooks calls a meritocracy, We live in a society where everything we seek to participate in, everything that we seek to gain, everything that we have, we earn. And so when we hear Jesus say, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me, our immediate notion is to get busy. We got to get busy. We got to get busy trying hard to follow Christ. Because after all, being a Christian primarily is about what we must do for Christ. And what we must do for others. That's wrong. The Bible says Christianity primarily and fundamentally is not about what you must do. But it's about what Christ has done. And that sounds more like good news. The other one sounds more like good advice. But the gospel is good news. That Christianity is primarily about what Christ has done. Not, must, not primarily about what you must do. But if we reflect on this reality of what Christ has done, then we start to understand the important distinction and the implications of what we must do as a result of what Christ has done. We don't do things so Christ will love us. We do things because Christ loves us. Some of you are more grammatically astute than others, and so you might recognize this grammatical maxim of the indicative and the imperative. The indicative states what is true. Christ loves you no matter what. You think you're bad, you're far worse than you've ever imagined. You think you're loved, you're far more loved, accepted, and forgiven than you've ever dared to dream. And that's the gospel, and that is true. And that's an indicative statement. But then there's an imperative that follows the indicative. As a result of Christ's love for you, as a result of Christ's sacrifice for you, as a result of Christ's literal death to self for you, He's calling us to die to ourselves and live for others. Imperative. 
You see, the more we understand the scope of Scripture, Jesus is not simply set forth as an example. Jesus is preached regularly with a moralistic, legalistic bent as we espouse the different truths of Christ and preachers week in and week out simply state, here's Jesus' example, go and do likewise. Even our text says, go and do likewise. But if we fail to see Christ as a Savior and only see Him as an example, we're moralist, and we're legalist, and we're self-righteous, and we're angry, and we'll burn out. But Christ is an example, but Christ is first and foremost a Savior. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? If we look in more detail in Luke 10, I want us to see three things about following Christ. If we're going to follow Christ, if we're going to die to ourselves and live for others, we're going to be challenged, number one. We're going to be called to sacrifice, number two. And then number three, we're going to be called to embrace. So challenge sacrifice and embrace. Following Christ entails a challenge. Following Christ entails sacrifice. And following Christ entails embrace. From Luke chapter 10, the challenge comes here at the beginning of our text. There's really two narratives going on in Luke 10. The first narrative is one that, you know, parables are stories that Jesus told illustratively, as in they did not, they're not actual historical events. Jesus, I wouldn't say just off the cuff made them up per se, uh, but said, suppose there was a man. But prior to Jesus saying, suppose there was a man, there really was a man who really was a lawyer, as in an expert in the law, religiously speaking, who our text tells us wanted to test Jesus. And so in his testing of Jesus, he asked him two questions. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And then secondly, and Jesus answered, and they go through, and then he says, who is my neighbor? And Jesus challenges him immediately. The first thing Jesus challenges this man on inherently and a little more implicitly is this man's desire for eternal life. Have you ever thought about it, that everyone desires eternal life? In 2011, you may or may not remember, uh, that the NBA was on a lockout. And so they were supposed to start the season, I think, on November the 1st of 2011, but there was tension and there was gridlock between the owners and the players, and they were not going to play professional basketball, which is a big deal on a number of different levels. And, then go, and this started back in the summer, and then November 1st came, and they were still not going to play, and then a day went on, and the day went on, and all the way until December 25th, Christmas Day of 2011, the NBA was not going to happen. But just prior to Christmas Day, they came to agreement. The gridlock broke, and they decided they were going to play, and they stated the first games would be on December 25th, 2011. And TNT, the network, is the primary network, or was, uh, for the NBA in 2011. And so they wanted to do a promo that was basically going to communicate, the NBA is back. We're going to play. And so one day, I'm not necessarily an NBA fan. I just happened to see this commercial, and a song came on. It was a beautiful song, and you started to see images of current NBA players transposed with NBA players of the past, and it's really fascinating. The editing is incredible, and just the the magic that happens through this as you see 
literally Magic Johnson, running out onto the floor with Kobe Bryant, whom they did not play together, running right behind him. You see Michael Jordan throwing a behind-the-back pass to Derrick Rose. You see Tim Duncan posting up against Bill Walton. And it looks like it's really happening. And it's amazing. And then the song in the background is a song called Live Forever by Drew Holcomb. And the chorus simply says, I want you to live forever. And you get the sense of like, this is amazing. This is amazing. We need basketball. We need to play again. There's so much history here. But the truth is, we all want to live forever. In fact, it's the theme of the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3, verse 11. God says that He has set eternity in the hearts of man. He has set eternity in the hearts of man. And this man, this lawyer, comes to Jesus just like every man and every woman desiring to live forever. Not wanting to be immortal, but wanting to be immortal. Not wanting to be amortal, but wanting to be immortal. What must I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus challenges his desire, but the second thing that Jesus challenges within this man is his sense to justify himself. You see, the text tells us, if you will, look back at it. It's in your bulletin. What must I do to inherit? Which you understand how inheritances work, right? You don't do anything. He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Two principles within Deuteronomy and Leviticus. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, catch this, desiring to justify Himself. You know, we all desire to justify ourselves. Justify simply means to show that something is reasonable, that it is right, that it is true. To justify means to show something is reasonable, that it is right, that it is true. Isn't that what we do in life? We want to show others and prove to ourselves that we are reasonable, that we are right, and that we are true. And we look to other objects in order to justify ourselves. My kids will show me or prove that I'm reasonable, true, and right. Actually, not, not a good example. Um, my job will show that I'm reasonable, true, and right. It'll justify me, except last week that kind of messed up. Um, oh, I got it. Relationships, especially marriage. Marriage it fixes everything. It justifies us, right? Marriage shows us that we are reasonable, right, and true. Or money, possessions, seek to justify our existence. We are all longing, looking to these things, essentially to communicate to us that we're important, that we matter. And these things seek to tell us who we are. So we look at our kids and we look at our job and we look at our money and we look at our culture and we look at our possessions and we even look at our religion and we essentially make this demand. Tell me who I am. 
Tell me who I am. And then we wonder, by the way, why we have tension in marriage. Just as a side note. We're looking to justify ourselves through these things. It reminds me of the great film from the early 80s, Chariots of Fire. I'm assuming a number of you have seen this. Uh, Fact-based movie. Telling the story of two great runners, one from Scotland and one from England, Eric Little and Harold Abrams. Eric Little is the Scottish runner who happens to be a Christian who famously talks about when he runs, he feels God's pleasure. Harold Abrams is actually an English Jew and not as well known in the film. He has a quote that's no less significant that says this. They ran the 100-yard dash, by the way, in the 1924 Olympics. Harold Abrams says this, not only about that race, but about his entire existence. And you tell me if this rings a bell. I will raise my eyes and look down that corridor, four feet wide, ten lonely seconds, to justify my whole existence. But will I do it? Four feet wide, Ten lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. I don't know what your lane is specifically in life, but I know that all of us are seeking to justify ourselves. All of us are looking to things. Four feet wide, ten lonely seconds to tell us who we are. And I say this compassionately because I'm with you. But how's that going? Jesus redirects at this point these man's desires in this man, this man's desire for eternal life and this man's desire for self-justification. And he tells them this famous story. And the story simply is about sacrifice. So following Jesus means he's going to challenge us. He's going to challenge our desires for eternal life and he's going to challenge our desire to justify ourselves. But following Jesus also means sacrifice. And this is where we see this very famous parable of the Good Samaritan, what it means to die to others, or die to ourselves and live for others, what it means to reach out to those who are less desirable or unlovely. Henry Nouwen, great theology professor, very well written, very astute, taught at Ivy League institutions like Yale and Harvard, and spent his last years in ministry and life serving a community in Canada of mentally handicapped adults. And he says this, community is the place where the person you least want to live with always lives. Community is the place where the person you least want to live with always lives. The parable of the Good Samaritan surely has principles about community. You've got this man along the side of the road who is the person that everyone least wants to live with. But there he is beckoning them to metaphorically live with him. And Jesus is calling us to sacrifice. Jonathan Edwards, in his essay, The Duty of Charity, we don't use words like that very often, There is a duty to which God's people are under very strict obligation. It is not merely a commendable thing for a man to be kind and bountiful to the poor. But our duty 
as much as our duty is as it to pray or to attend public worship. And the, and the neglect of it brings great guilt upon any person. He says our duty to be charitable to others, our, our duty to live with those that we least want to live with, our duty to sacrifice and develop community is just as strong, if not stronger, than our duty to pray as Christians. And our duty to even do what we're doing right now, to attend public worship. Let's look in a little more detail about the sacrifices that Jesus is calling His people to that are seeking to follow Him through this parable. And let's look at it simply by identifying these characters. The first character we see in the story is this man on the road who was beaten nearly to death. His condition was dire. The text tells us he was stripped, beaten, half dead, alone, unable to help himself. He was desperate and needy. And every scholar I read assumes this man was Jewish, which is important as this story unfolds a little more. The first person that comes alongside this man down this road from Jerusalem to Jericho was a priest. Priests were wealthy. Priests were connected. Priests were clean. Scholars believe that there's no doubt the priest was riding on a horse or a mule or a donkey simply because of his position in society. No priest, no respectable priest would have been walking down this road. Why is that important to note? Because if you have an animal with you, it's easier to help somebody, right? simply just put them on your horse or your mule or your donkey. But the priest sees him, we know, the text tells us, but he does not approach him. Why in the world would he not approach him? Because he assumes he is dead or nearly dead and priests religiously were bound by law to keep their cleanliness. And if you came near a dead person, you were at that moment deemed unclean. And so in one sense, before we completely throw this priest under the bus, the priest thought he was doing the right thing. The priest was bound so fastidiously and legalistically and moralistically to a law, to the letter of a law, that he was unwilling to help this man in front of him. Even though he had an animal to do so, he goes completely to the other side of the road. Not long after potentially even in eyesight of the priest, comes a Levite who essentially was like an assistant priest. Like senior pastor, assistant pastor. Here, coming down the road. And the Levite most likely knew that the priest had already been by, as I just said, because he probably saw this. In, the, in, in their time and in their culture, people knew who was along the road and the Levite therefore had already concluded the priest didn't stop. He deemed it unclean. There's no way I can stop and help this man. So this man was codependent, if you will, psychologically on the priest. And so he took a closer look, yet he still left. And then verses 33 through 37 seem to me to beg some rereading. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, unlike the others, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to the inn and took care of him. 
And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper of his own money. Take care of him, whatever you spend, and I will repay you when I come back. So the Samaritan has a significantly different decision and position than the priest and the Levite. What we see from this Samaritan is sacrifice. And this would be shocking, by the way, for people who heard this story. Especially this lawyer who Jesus was engaged in conversation with, who was Jewish. For Jesus to put the Samaritan in a positive light would have been appalling. And it's hard for us to understand this. We see this throughout the New Testament. And preachers like me or or Bible study teachers try to draw out the distinctions between Jews and Gentiles, Jews and Samaritans, and different religious sects and all. And we just simply fall short. One of the Middle Eastern commentators that I, or one of the commentators I read who's an expert in Middle Eastern uh, first century Judaism and, and Christianity uh, kept using the analogy uh, from Native Americans, Indians, and basically cowboys um, in the Wild West in the 1800s. Uh, at one point, Kenneth Bailey says, for this Samaritan to bring this Jew on horseback into a Jewish city and settlement would be like an Indian bringing a scalped cowboy into Dodge City on his own horse, checking him into a local inn and expecting everything to be fine. See, Samaritans were the worst. There was a quote during their day, He who eats the bread of Samaritans eats the flesh of swine. And of course, Jews believed swine to be utterly unclean. The Samaritans were publicly cursed in the synagogues, and a request was daily offered, praying to God that the Samaritans might not be partakers of eternal life. How's that for loving your neighbor? We just go to the synagogue daily and pray that this people group would not partake in eternal life. And then here Jesus is telling a story about one who was good. What did this man do exactly? And how can we apply this in our own lives? Even just think about these texts, what the words tell us. He had compassion. That'd be a good place to start. He went to him. It's not rocket science. It starts with compassion in our hearts, then it moves into our hands and our feet as we move towards people that are needy. He bound his wounds by pouring wine and oil that were his. And this act was messy. We'll never really be able to sacrifice and serve people without dispensing our own possessions and getting messy. He provided for him by his own goods, set him on his own animal. He took him for help. He didn't just drop him on the doorstep somewhere. He went with him. He connected him with others who could help. He paid for him. He committed himself in an ongoing way to his well-being. What the Samaritan did cost his time, his money, and his reputation. As much as I personally don't want to hear this, I don't think we can really sacrifice and serve others 
without paying money, without paying time, and without paying our reputation. I'll let you figure out how that manifests itself specifically in your life. But it's easy for some to give money, but not to give time or reputation. It's easier for others to withhold money, but to give time. But repeatedly throughout Scripture, what we see is this deadly, yet life-giving combination of money and time. Of course, you're not bad examples of this. Here you are at a church plant at 8.30 in the morning in a gym. And many of you got here at 7.30 to do things like put signs in the ground and pour cups of communion. It might not be as sensational as feeding the homeless downtown, which we need to do. But I do commend you for acts of service and mercy even already in the life of this church. It's what it really means to be a Christian. 1 John chapter 3, verses 17 and 18 say this, If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can he, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and truth. If we see someone in need and we don't help them, the question is in the Bible, not out of my mouth, how can the love of God be in you? To follow Jesus means to sacrifice. To follow Jesus means to seek to care for people holistically, physically, financially, emotionally, and spiritually. True religion, Isaiah tells us in chapter 1, look, he basically says in a paraphrase, you do all this worship, you jump through all these religious hoops, you make sacrifices here, you do this there. I don't care about any of it. In fact, it makes me sick. It's literally what God says in Isaiah 1. He says, if you want to do something that has value or worth, get this. Verse 17, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. That's powerful. And I don't know exactly how to talk about this, and I can't go on it for a long time, but I'll just simply say this. Um, I get that you as a crowd follow current events. I get that you as a crowd probably read news publications and watch certain news sources and listen to podcasts. And I think it's fine on one level to engage in political discussion. I think we've got to be careful as Christians that Jesus, without question, was the most bipartisan human being that ever walked the face of the earth. And I simply want to encourage this. Let's try to take politics out of these issues and let's just ask questions like, what does it mean to serve people? What does it mean to love people? What does it mean to have compassion on people? And I get that there are technical debates and I get that there are, is this hurting or helping? And those things are helpful. But at times I wonder if we get so caught in the politics of things that our hands and our feet are lethargic in the midst of our cognitive and emotionally charged political discussions. Which can be helpful, but not at the expense of the lethargy of our hands and our feet. Because you see, if our hands and our feet get moving, it's pretty powerful. So powerful 
that in Rome, around 300 AD, Julian the Apostate was the emperor, and he was not a Christian. And he did not like Christians. And he wanted the Greek religion to be proliferated among their people. But Julian the Apostate said this about Christians around 320 or so A.D. The religion of the Greeks does not yet prosper as I wish it would on account of those who profess it. But the gifts of the gods are great and splendid, better than any prayer or any hope. Indeed, a little while ago, no one would have dared even pray for such a change. And so complete a one in so short of a space of time. Why then do we think that this is sufficient and do not observe the law of how the kindness of Christians is to strangers? Their care for the burial of the dead and the sobriety of their lifestyle has done far more to advance their cause than our religion has for ours. He goes on to say, Christians support not only their own poor, but ours as well. All men see that our people lack aid from us. You see, Christianity at that time in history in Rome was vital. It was moving. People were believing. Culture was being transformed and changed. Can you imagine a culture where Christians actually had influence? Like positive influence. That's what was happening in Rome. And it simply happened in Rome because Christians were willing to sacrifice for others. Christians were willing to show deeds of mercy and justice and compassion. So much so that an apostate emperor, Julian, said, they're they're doing more for our poor than we are. And they were famous for it. Give you one more quote. Make one point and we're finished. This is my prayer for our church. This is from Charles Spurgeon. He was a Baptist preacher in the 19th century in England. I don't know that I've ever heard a summary of what the church is supposed to be better than this. And and keep this in mind with what I just said. um, How diminished the power and the voice is of Christians in our culture today. You've got people groups. You've got um, sects of people. You've got interest groups that are micro in number relative to Christians in number in our culture that dwarf the cultural influence of Christians today in our culture. And I could enumerate these different people groups that are micro percentage-wise, but are macro in influence. And meanwhile, we've got the church. I don't know if I would say it's macro because the number is lessening, but there's still a significant number of Christians that exist in our culture, yet the voice is so micro. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Charles Spurgeon says, Brothers, you may, if you will, dignify your minister by the name of bishop. You may give to your deacons and elders grand official titles. You may call your place of worship a cathedral. You don't have to worry about that. You may worship, if you will, with all the grandeur and pompous ceremonial and all the adornments of music and incense and the like. 
But you shall have only the semblance of power over human minds unless you have something more than these. But if you have a church, no matter by what name it is called, that is devout, that is holy, that is living unto God, that does good in its neighborhood, that by the lives of its members spreads holiness and righteousness. In a word, if you have a church that is really making the world whole in the name of Jesus, you shall in the long run find that even the most carnal and thoughtless will say, the church which is doing this good is worthy of respect. Therefore, let us hear what it has to say. Wouldn't that be awesome? So following Jesus means that He challenges our desires for eternal life and challenges our desires for self-justification. Following Jesus means, in the, in the bulk of this passage, to sacrifice for others in ways that it hurts. Like hurts us. And then we're left with this embrace. Well, what do we embrace from this passage? We embrace the gospel. Because you see, it'd be very easy to simply leave this and say, go and do likewise. Go try hard. Sacrifice. Go be a good Samaritan. That's who you are, right? You're the good Samaritan. No, you're not. You know who we are in this passage? We're the Jew on the side of the road. We've read this passage probably wrong our whole life if you've ever read it. How do I know I'm right? Origen, Ambrose, Augustine, Kenneth Bailey, Tim Keller. All interpret this parable as the man laying on the road as us. And you know who the Good Samaritan is? Jesus. We're not the Good Samaritan. We're the person that's beaten, lying half dead, hopeless, lost, least, little. Lying there. Longing for hope and help. And here Christ is. Heals our wounds. Pays for our wounds. Gives Himself for us. Now. Because you've received this love from the Good Samaritan. Go and try to do likewise. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you.